From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home. A remarkable, this most recent blood moon, which is the third in the four blood moons that are coming our way, or that have come our way, known as the Tetrad. Uh, that it, uh, what's remarkable is that it happened over Passover, of course. Uh, these blood moons are all uh, occurring simultaneously on Jewish high holidays. Now, when the Hebrews marked their door with lamb's blood, which is uh, what Passover is about, the Hebrew word for blood is dam or dam. The numeric value for dam is four. The Hebrew word for door, which is spelled D-A-L-E-T, dalet or dalet, again, numerically, it represents four. So blood is four, door is four, Passover this year falling on the falling on the fourth month of the fourth day and get this this blood moon this lunar eclipse was the shortest in duration so far this century and it lasted wait for it four minutes 44 seconds uh, we have a controversial and somewhat disturbing program coming up this hour at the bottom of the hour i'll be joined by a gentleman who's been using his smartphone camera equipped with a special filter and pointing it at the sun and hitting record. And what has been recording these last several months is, well, kind of bizarre. He's been doing this for several months, as I say, and the object that is clearly visible as a large dot in the upper left-hand portion of the sun is getting larger, and it appears to be heading our way. And we've posted that video uh, at richardserrett.com in the, uh, the slide carousel. Robert Dunn believes this object is the legendary Planet X, or Nibiru. For those of you familiar with the writings of the late Zachariah Sitchin, you'll be familiar with Planet X and its 3,600-year elliptical orbit, and that according to legend, every time this massive celestial body swings by our corner of the galactic neighborhood, it causes major cataclysmic events here on Earth. Before that, the rumors, innuendo, speculation, and conspiracy theories continue to fly in connection with the tragic crash of the German Wings aircraft in the French Alps uh, a few weeks ago that killed all 150 people on board. The co-pilot, Andres Lubitz, has been essentially tried and convicted in a heinous murder-suicide, locking the pilot out of the cockpit and steering the Airbus A320 into the ground. But there are a number of inconsistencies at variance with the official narrative, which has been stitched together largely, we are told, almost entirely on the contents of a badly damaged flight voice recorder. Researcher George Freund has an alternative version of those tragic events, and although it's very controversial and speculative, no more so than the official version, perhaps, and he joins us right now. Hey, George, how are you? Oh, good, thanks. Thanks for being with us. And thank you, Richard, for having me aboard. So many inconsistencies and odd things I find uh, regarding this German Wings Flight 9525 that crashed uh, back on, on March the 24th. I want to start with the, um, the idea that uh, somehow Andreas Lubitz managed to lock the pilot out of the cockpit. Now, tell me about the components and, and so forth of the Airbus 320, the A320. Are there not fail-safes that would prevent something like that? How could a pilot or a co-pilot lock somebody out of the cockpit? Well, there is a control mechanism in the Airbus, 
So basically we have two panels. There's a panel in the cockpit and a panel in the body of the aircraft. They're like a numbered keypad like you'd see in almost any security arrangement. And the uh, the pilot would leave and the other pilot would be in the cockpit and uh, he has an override switch as well. So when uh, you come back, you punch in your number, the pilot that's in the cockpit can hit the override button and stop you from accessing the cockpit directly. And uh, there is a timer mechanism in the Airbus A320 that allows uh, you know, anywhere from two minutes up to, uh, you know, I believe it's seven or eight minutes to delay the entry. But, uh, you know, it could be a battle of wits between one and the other to lock you out. Uh, but uh, I get the feeling per- primarily that, uh, you know, we're just being fed a red herring about the story about trying to gain access to the cockpit. Let me just see if I understand this. So there is a, there is a keyboard, or a keypad rather, on uh, inside the cockpit and then inside the uh, on the other side of the cockpit door. So if this pilot were locked out, the first thing he would do would, would be to enter his code into the keypad. But the pilot, the rather the co-pilot in this case Andreas Lubitz would have an override to prevent the pilot from getting in. But what do you, so so further to that then what are you saying that 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 that, that he could only delay the pilot's entry for 2 to 7 minutes and then the way it's made, yes, it's a, it's a delay factor. But he could he could presumably keep delaying the pilot from entering. So I mean, is it conceivable that he that he locked him out? It's possible he could lock him out, but it, uh, as I understand it, it's something that could only happen uh, once. That it's it's a delay factor. There's also supposed to be a uh, you know that the captain of the plane has a key as well to get around the electrical technical. So he has a key. So last resort, he has a key that would override the keypad and, and everything else. Only the pilot would have that. Yes. Now, have you been able to confirm this with with your sources that this is in fact the case with the with the uh, the Airbus A320? Uh, that's the general operating procedure with these aircraft. You know, German wings could do something slightly different, but uh, you know, I get the feeling most of this story about the cockpit and everything else is a complete and total red herring because. We have multiple stories. They've changed as the situation has progressed. And uh, I have very little confidence that uh, we're getting the truth at all in this, uh, this manufacture. Uh, and initially, we were told that the, uh, the pilot, in a desperate attempt to gain access to the cockpit, he, uh, he began banging on the door with an axe. Now, where would he get an axe? Well, unfortunately, that's what proves or shows that the story's full of holes is because the axe is in the cockpit. So, <laughs> unless he took it to the bathroom with him. And uh, so when, when we get, uh, you know, a propaganda story, pretty much like we're getting with this air, you know, German wing story, uh, it's, it's all the lies, the new lies for old lies or worse, uh, so what uh, some of the German media have done is change the axe story now to become a crowbar. And, uh, well, generally, they don't have anything like that on an aircraft either. They don't allow anything that can be used as a weapon or a potential weapon to be in the in the public body of the aircraft. Certainly post-9-11. Exactly. So, you know, Air Canada pilots that I know and, and such like that, they take their nail clippers away and then give them the fire axe. <laughs> exactly right, uh, or uh, knives and forks and all the booze you can drink. Uh, but so you're saying that that an Airbus, an A320 Airbus, would be equipped with an axe, but that axe is in fact stored in the cockpit. That's standard procedure. Correct. 
for safety and security reasons. It's a fire axe for the crew to use uh, so that they can protect uh, themselves. And they wouldn't have a crowbar. I mean, I I, I, I wouldn't no. imagine why they would ha- they would need a crowbar. Well, I suppose if they wanted to pry open uh, an emergency door or something like that. Is it is it not possible that they had a crowbar? Uh, I, I, I find that very hard to believe. I think most of this is manufactured narrative, and uh, I don't see that they would have a crowbar. All right, let's talk about the uh, the co-pilot, 27-year-old Andreas Lubitz. Uh, we are being told that he had been declared unfit to work. He was hiding... Uh, this this mental illness from his employers. What do you hear? What do you know about that? I mean, is there any substance to that story? It's an old story. It sounds like a, you know some time ago when he was in, you know twenty twenty one years old when he started to get into this sort of thing. He did have a break in his training and he did take some psychiatric leave, and uh, you know he may have been under the care of a physician or a psychiatrist. And it sounds like it's an old hat story, and uh, to me it sounds like it's something that's being manufactured to turn him into the villain because the other stories didn't fly. And, uh, you know, we had three distinct stories start out with this crash. The first was the uh, the fighter jets, and then we had a story about uh, uh, an explosion in the sky that matched first right up and then it changed into the plane had mechanical faults and then when it was determined the mechanical faults were with the landing gear then a kamikaze pilot doesn't need landing gear so that story changed and then it focused on the pilot so when it first happened uh, within a reasonable period of time German wings pilots didn't want to fly because they were concerned about the safety features on the plane that that plane and its sister plane had issues with the windscreen and uh, you know later it was determined that the specific error with that aircraft was the landing gear and then the story just died and it was changed into Andreas Lubitz that uh, he has mental health problems and uh, he purposely crashed the plane but the only evidence they had was the uh, you know if they even had that was the cockpit cockpit voice recorder saying that he was breathing that was the only thing that uh, came out of this is he was breathing and the rest is narrative that's been manufactured and added and, and put into place so that leaves a lot uh, you know for conjecture in my opinion uh, well it is curious that uh, not that this is you know uh, necessarily that compelling uh, a, a piece of evidence but there was no suicide note as Correct. far as we were aware and uh, one would presume I mean he was he had a girlfriend he had family that would think he might leave something behind, although that doesn't necessarily mean anything, or does it? Well, I think it means a lot. Like if you were uh, at a point in time where you know you're considering ending your life, you know I find it hard to believe that in the confines of this cockpit that uh, you know the, the guy wouldn't have screamed out or said something. If this is such a burning desire that his life is ruined or he's holding someone responsible for something that uh, that he wouldn't scream and uh, you know so if you're trying to allude that uh, he was an Islamic extremist that on the way down he's going Allah Akbar or he's yelling at the airline or whoever he feels is uh, is you know destroying his life uh, that he would call out and that didn't happen when we go through all the detail I've gone through a lot of the uh, the media reports on this gentleman and everyone who knew him personally, one up, said he was a decent guy, happy, liked flying. 
They have their names attached to the story, their photographs frequently, and, uh, you know, that's first-hand evidence. The people who have been alleging in the beginning that uh, he was, you know, off the wall or something, they're anonymous sources, and frequently the anonymous source is repeating hearsay, and in some cases double hearsay, to say that someone said this, and they told somebody else, and now I'm telling you that he's crazy. But... You know, there's no name attached uh, to compare with the people that actually did know him and say that they have, uh, you know, fine recollection of him being like one of the last pilots that worked with him said, you know, he was a very happy man. He was looking forward to uh, everything that was going on. And this doesn't seem to jive with uh, the story we're getting. George Freund is uh, with us, uh, independent researcher. And, uh, of course, well-known for his uh, podcast, Conspiracy Cafe. We're talking about the tragic German Wings air crash, killing all 150 people aboard uh, back on March the 24th. Uh, coming up on a break here, but uh, when we on the other side, I'd, I'd like to talk about the debris field, which is, well, it's reminiscent uh, of the, uh, the debris field of um, uh, another plane that uh, hit the ground during 9-11. And, uh, I don't know, to me that just screams out as a, it's just a red flag. And I'll get your take on that as well, uh, George. But, um, as we head into the break, let's just, let's begin that conversation. And, Definitely. Uh, yeah. So w- 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 the, the debris field, ex- describe it to me. It's all over. It's a massive debris field. It's one square mile. Now we are being told, and I'll start from one of the first stories that came out from a French official. Segoline Royale. Okay, let me just stop you there. I'm, I am getting the signal for a break, so we'll we'll come back and we'll talk about the debris field. George Freund here talking about the German wings crash right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with George Freund. Okay, the debris field. One of the uh, first releases from the French government came from an official named Ségolène Royal, and he described at 10.30 the pilots were chatting away in conversation, and at 10.31, when contact was lost, the plane nose dived into the ground. And uh, so that's one of the first stories that uh, comes up that, fits with the fact fighter jets were reported next to the plane there was an explosion in the air now we have a new story where the pilot went to the washroom and the co-pilot took over and he turned the controls into uh, an autopilot controlled descent although it was at an oblique angle and uh, the plane crashed into the ground now you have a very large jumbo jet crashing into the ground there should be a big hole in the ground uh, you know, in the uh, Moulton air crash here in Toronto in the 70s, that was something I was involved in for my disaster planning training. The, the, the nose of that plane was 20 feet underground, and uh, it was only crashing at about 140 miles an hour. This one's a heavier plane crashing at 400 miles an hour. There should be one massive hole in the ground, and a good part of the plane embedded into the ground. This is spread out over such a large area, it implies that the plane actually came apart in the air and fell in pieces, because we have two distinct ridges in the in these mountains, and refuse from the plane is on either side of, of these uh, mountain ridges. 
so and you know how did these parts jump over the cliff to go to the other side they had to fall that way one of the other things would be the jet fuel if the plane landed intact uh, in this suicide attempt then one would reasonably expect that it would have caught fire and the jet fuel would have exploded because the you know the fuel tanks would have been intact until they hit the ground there was no massive fireball or explosion uh, on the ground at all just little pockets of smoke from uh, isolated fires but uh, nothing that would be indicative of a major crash into the ground so uh, the the physical scene matches the first story it doesn't match the second story yeah that's where it mirrors flight 93 the uh, the infamous let's roll flight that um, many um, uh, people now believe was in fact shot down uh, that it wasn't you know that it didn't crash uh, again a, a similar debris field Oh, exactly. There's no way you can hide that. That's something you can see with your own eyes. And, uh, you know, it's something I was taught since I was a small child by my grandfather is to think for yourself, not to let other people do your thinking for you. And one of the big errors with mass media is sometimes they get on to something and no one really thinks or analyzes what's right before your eyes and, uh, and judges it for what it is. So we can see clearly with this massive debris field that we're dealing with a, a plane that had come apart in the sky and fell in many, many pieces over a very broad area. Uh, you know, I'd like to see, although I haven't come across uh, any photographs uh, flat up, is the engines. That would probably answer a lot, uh, to, because they're so large and heavy. If they weren't near the body of, uh, you know, the large body of, of wreckage, that they fell a couple of miles away, <laughs> then that's you know, perfect evidence that the plane came apart in the sky and the engines, uh, you know, came down before the rest. Uh, you mentioned the, the two NATO fighter jets. These were Italian planes, were they not? I'm not too sure of the nationality. I've heard some people say French, you know, I, uh, you're saying Italian. But, uh, you know, there's no mistake the sound of the planes and the way they maneuver that you're dealing with, you know, modern fighter jets. And uh, they were reported by the first witnesses on the scene, and uh, those witnesses also reported an explosion, which they described as dynamite. So, you know, something that uh, would be, you know, like a, an explosive material as opposed to, uh, you know, maybe an accidental fuel explosion or something like that, something more of a military-style hardware. And those reports just stopped. And, uh, you know, the story changed and morphed into a new format. And that just reeks of some sort of intelligence operation of massaging the facts with a cover story to cover up perhaps the execution of one of the passengers on the plane who was you know, very, very high up in the geospatial satellite program with the United States military working for Bose Allen Hamilton, the same company Mr. Snowden worked for. Her name was Yvonne Selke. You've confirmed that on the... Uh, the, the the uh, passenger manifest that, that that she was aboard that plane. Yvonne oh, yes. Selke. Her obituary is well covered. They don't get into too many details about her. They deal with her daughter, who was a university graduate and uh, in her 20s. They mention her mostly, and they just mention specifically that she worked for Bose Allen Hamilton on this program. And uh, But that is a very important program with the world in flux between NATO and Russia, uh, you know, jockeying for position and all these war drills they're doing. If one side could take out the other side's satellites or a serious part of their technology, 
they would have a serious one-up to consider a first strike in any type of conflict. So you're saying that that, uh, they killed 150 people as a sort of a cover story to get to Yvonne Selke, uh, Bose Allen Hamilton. Uh, And who is... I mean, let, let me just back up here for a moment before we talk about who. Wouldn't it be... You know, easier just to, I don't know, fix her brakes, slip something into her drink, take her out, uh, you know, in a vehicle. Why would they take out 150 people? Because there's no super ability to come up with a motive because you make it look like an accident. And uh, it's an old trick, actually. One, as I was researching the history of, uh, of some of the things around uh, things like that, Nero did something like this to kill his mother, Agrippina the Younger by sabotaging a boat she was going to be on so it would sink with massive loss of life. If you just kill one person, then people will be suspicious to say that it's a possible murder and there could be a motive. When you have a a multiple casualty event, then that's a different thing, especially if there's a rational explanation that would say it was an accident or, in this case, a a murder, but a murder pulled off by a suicidal co-pilot. Uh, who is being painted as you know the most evil man in the world in his uh, Orwellian so many minutes of hate that uh, are being carried on. But no evidence has been provided to say that specifically at the time when he was at these controls that he was behaving in this manner. They just, the best they had is he was breathing. And one of the other, you know, terrible just dichotomies of news is the fact that these black box memory re- uh, you know, data recorders were reported at first in the New York Times as one was uh, unusable through damage and the other one was missing its data card. So where do we get this information then? If one doesn't have a data card and the other one's damaged and unusable, then where is all this information coming out? Is, is it a fiction story from beginning to end being written by, uh, you know, people who are bad script writers? The, that doesn't make sense. So, you know, this was, uh, you can't get a more reputable newspaper, I guess, than the New York Times reporting that uh, there were serious errors and flaws in in these recorders, and yet these people seem to have very detailed information coming from something that they say came from these data recorders. It doesn't make sense, unless it's just being made up as a cover story, and most everything we're starting to see is heading in that general direction. One other story that isn't being reported much at all. It was just by luck. I was reading the Australian media, and I found it in an English-language newspaper in Australia, is a Kurdish football team backed out at the last minute and didn't get on the plane. And that would be, to me, in the light of the information going on here, a newsworthy story to say, you know, hey, look at this. Lucky guys, right? Right. But what are the Kurds, really? They're a, a proxy military fighting in the Middle East, under the auspices of uh, the CIA, perhaps, the American military. Uh, and Did word get around, maybe, that something was going to happen and somebody tipped off uh, guys that they like and as sporting heroes or fellow countrymen and say, you know, hint, hint, don't take this plane, not today. And uh, that they, they, they booked off the plane and uh, found all their transportation arrangements. So that, that just screams. It also screams by silence as why isn't it a big story in the United States or England or Canada that these miracle guys missed the flight? Why target Yvonne Selke? Who would have targeted her? If she was running away to possibly give information to a foreign power like Russia that could tip the scale 
in any type of future conflict between Russia and change the technology gap to give one a, an advantage over the other one, uh, I don't think the Americans are going to allow any more Snowdens. And, uh, you know, it's one thing just to get muckraked over your dirty laundry, but to uh, actually have someone who could take intelligence and give it to a hostile power or a potential hostile power, uh, I think they would do anything to stop that. And, uh, you know, even resorting to murder wouldn't slow them down. It's not like they haven't taken out many, many people in plane crashes. Well, but then if that's what, if she was, if they had it on good authority that she was going to, you know, give this kind of information to the Russians, that, that I mean, I don't know that you could compare her to Snowden, uh, I mean, many people look to Snowden as, as a hero because he was alerting us to the fact that, you know, our civil liberties are being uh, trampled on. This is quite separate and apart from someone giving military secrets to a perceived enemy. Well, that could be under the auspices of trying to stop global thermal nuclear war, which is going to kill us all. And uh, so sometimes people who have information realize that they're being used for nefarious purposes, maybe even to orchestrate or start the war. And uh, they're saying, you know, hey, this is too much. We're not going to do this. And uh, by giving a technical advantage to, uh, you know, the potential enemy is that they can deflate the plan before it gets started so that we can't go that far. And uh, I think many military people over the years have operated under circumstances like that where they've given information away not to lose but to prevent something from happening, and that could be a case. But it's not discussed. Everything's focusing on the co-pilot, and he just seems to be a complete and total red herring, and most of the evidence surrounding him has flaws, falls apart, and uh, leaves us just standing by the side of the road going, what happened? Because this is just, uh, you know, it, it just grows and grows and grows as, as the story came online. And basically the only logic behind it is like kindergarten logic. How do you know something happened? Well, everybody says, well, based on what evidence. How would, how would the, a NATO pilot be convinced to fire a missile at a passenger plane carrying 150 innocent people? That's their job, killing, and you follow orders. You know how? You know, did Lieutenant Kelly uh, become too concerned about blowing away all sorts of innocent children? Did the guys who drop bombs and all sorts of uh, targets in Vietnam worry about the non-combatants? Do we worry about the non-combatants now in other places in the Middle East that are collateral damage? One of the other sidebar stories to this is immediately uh, after it happened, the CIA relieved of duty the guy who's in charge of the drone program for the United States. And he's killed thousands of people. He's a converted Muslim. He only has a first name, Roger. Uh, there's never been pictures released, and we don't know his, his surname at all. But immediately after this happened, within two days, he was relieved of duty and assigned to something else. Uh, was he involved in uh, a program like this? These are people that don't lose any sleep by killing. It really me. It might be a big thing for us because we have moral standards. But to a lot of other people, they just don't care. Well, it is all uh, very disturbing, George. Uh, last last question. Uh, we just have a few seconds here. Do you, do you think we're going to get to the bottom of this? Is any of this going to come to light? Well, we're going to get to the bottom of this because we have a desire to find the truth. And wherever it takes us, we're going to go there. And we discern between the garbage and the lies. 
and the facts that really hold together and are backed up by the evidence that we have. If the Germans really have uh, this recording, they can play it. If they have these shredded doctor's notes, they can show it. And if they don't, then I think they're just basically shooting blanks and telling us a big fabricated story, a cover story of some sort. And uh, so we'll find the answer. Will corporate media or mainstream media ever bother to look? I doubt it very much. But that's what makes us important and the rest of them fluff. All right, George, I I appreciate your time as always. Thank you for this. It's very disturbing. Good night. Good night. George Freund. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting ready to go on the air at Coast to Coast AM when I received an email from a Robert Dunn of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and attached to the email was an MP4 file, or a short uh, video, taken on his smartphone camera. Robert had pointed his smartphone at the sun around midday, something he's been doing fairly frequently these last few months, and what can be seen in the video in the upper left-hand portion of the sun is a large speck. Well, seen from the Earth, it's a speck, but Robert thinks in actual fact this speck is roughly four times the mass of Jupiter, the largest planet in the solar system. What could it be, if anything? Robert Dunn has a sinking feeling he knows what it is, and it's not good news. Bob Dunn, how are you? Good, Richard. Thanks. How are you, sir? Very well. As I was explaining off the top, uh, I I was just about to to do uh, Coast to Coast, Last week, and uh, or I guess a few weeks ago, and you sent me this email with this uh, video that you took with your with your smartphone. Right. Uh, I want you to I want you to walk us through exactly how you took this footage. Uh, tell us where you were, what time of day, and so forth. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm not sure exactly what time of day that one was. I think you said midday. Right. Midday. Yeah, midday. I've taken uh, like 74 of them uh, so far. I, I uploaded four new ones today. And um, what I do is I taped, uh, I think I used solar film on that one. Hang on, let me pull it up real quick. That was on March 12th, the video from March 12th, negative format. Yeah, I used a solar film on that, which I sent away for, some pro-grade astronomy uh, solar film. And I'd had taken some other ones in the past previously using uh, an old computer floppy disk I cut up, just tape it on the back of my cell phone. So you take this this negative film and you put it over your smartphone lens? Yeah, I tape the solar film. Because uh, you're shooting directly into the sun. Yeah, you have to, yeah, at right. least for my, for my uh, equipment anyway, uh, to really get any kind of an image. I shot directly at the sun, and uh, with the solar film screen in it, it's showing some uh, orbitals or other objects up there near our sun. <clears throat> now, I started doing this back in uh, November 17th, 2014, was the first uh, images I actually got. And, and what what uh, moved you to, to decide that you were going to point your smartphone directly at the sun and, and start uh, videoing? What, what, what urged you to do that? Well, actually, uh, I saw another guy, I think it was over in Thailand or something, I had a YouTube channel, and he posted a couple of videos 
that uh, I think he might have mentioned using a floppy disk. I'm not sure. But anyway, he caught some images of uh, objects up near the sun, so I figured I'd give it a shot, you know. Expl- and, uh, and explain. Voila. Okay, we've, now we've, we're, we've posted the, uh, or we will post the video uh, to richardserrett.com up in the uh, the slide carousel. People will just click on the image and it'll, it'll take them to your video, uh, Bob, so they can see the video that you sent to me a couple of weeks ago. Oh, ex- okay. And, uh, but for those not looking at the video right now, and we're, we're going to be heading into a break in a moment here, but just, uh, just tell us what they're, what they're going to see. Well, you're going to see it's, it's going to be a white screen because I put it on a negative format on the uh, cell phone camera because there's like five different uh, selections you can make. You can take with a regular regular lens, then you get the negative, blue screen, brown screen, and uh, the mono black or black screen. I had it on a negative screen. And a large dot is the sun, large blue dot, and then it's showing up a nice, uh, pretty good-sized dot up to the upper left of the sun, which, uh, in my opinion, is probably the dwarf star because that's supposed to be four times the size of Jupiter. Jupiter being the largest planet in our solar system. Correct, yeah. It's, it's either four times the size or four times the mass, but nonetheless... Okay. Listen, we've got to take a... a pretty- Bob, just hold tight. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll, we'll discuss uh, this. Bob Dunn joining us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, we're discussing Planet X, which he says he's captured on his smartphone. I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Bob Dunn from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who sent me a video a couple of weeks ago, which he believes is Planet X, Nibiru. Now, um, this artifact uh, in the upper left-hand portion of the sun, clearly visible on the smartphone video, which we've posted at richardserrett.com. What leads you to believe, first of all, this, this, I mean, it's a speck, really. Why, how are you able to determine that whatever it is we're looking at, planet X or otherwise, it would be four times the mass of Jupiter, our largest planet? Well, if you just compare it to the size of the sun, the sun being, you know, super large, and this dot that's showing up, it's got a pretty, pretty fair size to it. Uh, I'm just making, I'm just making a guess there. Sure. I mean, okay. I can't say for sure, but it's supposed to be uh, a dwarf star with a mini solar system with as many as seven planets, and Nibiru, Nibiru being one of the planets. I've caught as many as seven orbitals before in some of my earlier uh, captures, but of course, since everything's relative, the Earth's moving, the Sun's moving, this thing's moving, you're going to get different views on, during different times of the year. But I think I got the, the best shots back in uh, late November when I first started taking them, where you've seen more objects. Now, for those not aware of the backstory of Planet X or Nibiru, those who are not familiar, for example, with the works of Zachariah Sitchin, explain what Planet X or Nibiru is. Well, like I said, it's supposed to be a mini-solar system, and Sitchin, uh, he translated some of the Sumerian texts and came up with it, and it's also been recorded in some of the old Egyptian manuscripts and even in the Bible, and they, they called it the Destroyer, which it supposedly comes around every uh, 3,657 years in a long elliptical egg-shaped orbit 
through our solar system. So it, it comes through the inner solar system every 3,657 years or thereabouts. And when it does, it pretty much wreaks havoc on all the planets that it comes close to. Now, according to the Bible, it's supposedly uh, we're going to see destruction like never seen before. So this, this might be the worst passing yet. They call it the planet of the crossing. In other words, we cross its path, and then uh, all hell breaks loose destruction. Like, for instance, um, some of the earlier civilizations were wiped out by, I'm, I'm presuming by it, like uh, Atlantis and some of the other earlier things that just got completely buried or wiped out. Or, and presumably or the, that, that elliptical orbit, 3,600 years, coincides with things like the Great Flood here on Earth, and also even perhaps things like the parting of the Red Sea, uh, Ice Ages. Uh, does it have anything to do with, uh, you know, Venus is kind of an interesting uh, planetary body because it, it's, it orbits in the opposite direction of all the other planets. Uh, could that have had anything to do with a pass-by by Nibiru? I'm not real sure about that one, Okay. to be honest. You mean it's retrograde orbit all the time, Venus? I believe so. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about that one, Richard. But I've just been observing this one, and it seems to be getting bigger. And then uh, me being a born again Christian and all, I tried to figure out how it might be relevant to uh, end time prophecies. And I, I posted a lot of um, my conclusions underneath many of the uploads right. concerning the end times timeline and whatnot. Now you're saying that uh, each time you 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 hold your smartphone up to the sun and you've got this filter, this negative film. Uh, in front of your lens, and you're, hopefully you're not looking directly into the sun, uh, but you're saying that this artifact is getting larger. Yeah, I just taped some today. Well, this is um, March 29th. I guess this is going to be aired following Sunday, but I, I put up four today, and it looks like it's getting larger. There's clearly three objects up there, and they all look bigger than the last time I shot them, which was about a week ago. Now explain something to me, Bob, because this uh, is... A bit of a head scratcher. Uh, I, I just assumed that the the planet itself, planet X, Nibiru, would pass this way. But you're saying that it's a brown dwarf, sort of leading the parade and dragging the whole solar system with it. Is how does that yeah. happen? Yeah. Well, it's like a mini solar system, man. I know it's freaky, but uh, if you're at all familiar with um, electromagnetic universe, you know we have an electric electromagnetic portal from the Earth to the Sun, and the Sun has them to some of the other planets that have magnetic fields or or metallic cores. And uh, this dwarf star also has a, a huge electromagnetic field. And once we get close enough to it, it's going to latch on like a tractor beam to the Earth and pretty much do with it what it may. Could roll it over. I got a good video under there by Zeta Talk about a 3D animation of... Uh, what's likely to ha occur when we uh, come into this thing's orbital path. But what would cause, what would cause uh, this, this brown dwarf to break free from wherever it was uh, and, and, come, and come this way? Because that would be unprecedented, right? I mean, previously, well, we, just got, we just had Nibiru passing this way. Now we've got the whole kit and caboodle, the whole nine yards. Well, actually, uh, even NASA, and they put out a lot of disinfo, they said that all the solar systems that they've um, documented 
are binary. 80% of them have two, two twin suns, binary solar systems. So it's really not unusual that we have uh, two suns in our solar system. Ours just happens to come around once every 3,600 years or so because it's in this long elliptical orbit. Ah, so so this has happened previously, not just Planet X, but the whole solar system comes this way. Yeah, they just named it Planet X. That's that was, that's one of the disinfo things that I think NASA came up with early on when they first discovered it back in the early 80s with the IRS telescope, right. infrared telescope, which has since been shut down. In other words, we can't get get the feed from it. Well, uh, this thing can really be only seen in infrared, but now that it's up near our sun, it's catching uh, the reflection from the sun, so that's why I believe it's visible now. Well, then the question uh, is, Bob, if this is true, uh, it would be visible to hundreds, thousands perhaps of amateur astronomers all over the world. Why are they not screaming from the rooftop, something wicked this way comes? Huge cover-up, Richard. The powers that be—they don't want—they uh, don't want this info out. They want to have things continue uh, life as normal, so they can keep sucking all the dollars they can off the economies and whatnot. In fact, I think that's where the, a lot of the trillions of dollars went to build their deep underground bases, because they—they they know what's coming, and they want to keep everyone in the dark as long as possible, so that uh, they can just carry on business as usual. Now, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Now, NASA has this Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, WISE, uh, and this this probe uh, has found several thousand new objects much further out, other other uh, other planets, exoplanets, and so forth. Uh, but they are saying, and I I, I'm, I'm, I can anticipate what you're going to say, but, but that NASA is saying the outer solar system probably does not contain a large gas planet or a small companion star. In other words, they're saying they've scanned the uh, the entire sky with no signs of an undiscover, undiscovered planet or, or other large body in the outer reaches of the solar system. Well, of course, you know. I mean, they're they're part of the they're part of the cover up. But I mean, early on is what intrigued me was when they had the first the comet Elenin. You remember that? Yes. Several years ago, three years ago or so. Well, I think that was just turned out to be a big psyop. In other words, they they put that all out there to gauge the reaction of what was going to happen. And then, of course, it also uh, worked in their favor because nothing happened. So then, all these people crying from the rooftops about comet Elenin and uh, extinction level event and so forth. Uh, it didn't happen, so that pretty much discredited everybody. But um, is this an extinction level event, in your estimation? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Terrell, Terrell uh, Croft, he's got a channel up, uh, Black Star Update, and he's been monitoring the earthquake frequencies and uh, every whenever this thing's in different positions, outside orbital orbital position. And, and so forth, the earthquakes have all coincided for the last couple of years. And he's got a celestial model up showing where um, the Earth is relative to this dark star, he calls it. And we're going to be crossing its orbital path come May 20th, as best as he can figure. So we're talking about, like it says in First Thessalonians, everyone's going to be saying peace and safety, and then sudden destruction is going to come. Uh, and speaking a, of earthquakes, we just had, I understand, about an hour ago, a 7.7 just north of Australia. Yeah, 
yeah, I just seen that. But it's 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 going to be a sixth seal, in my opinion, the sixth seal revelation event. The sixth Chapter trumpet. Six. The sixth trumpet. No, no, no? sixth seal. The Not... trumpets come after the seals. Okay. That's that's why that. Well, yeah, you interviewed um, that Carl guy G- last week about it. Carl Gallops, yes. Carl Gallops, yeah. And in my opinion, he's just totally clueless. In fact, nobody's. Well, I wouldn't know about that. I wouldn't know about that. Nobody's looking for the signs in the heavens. Jesus uh, made prominent mention of it in Luke 21, 25 through 26. He said to watch for the signs in the heavens. Well, and uh, they've been here for a while. I mean, if you even just watch the sky, the clouds are like going across in a herky-jerky manner. Our weather systems are all screwed up. The jet stream's fragmented. There's something going on. We're just about out of time. We'll check in with you again. Uh, keep sending these videos. Do you have uh, maybe an, an amateur astronomer friend or, or a colleague who can take a look at that just to tell you what's going on there? No, but you know what? Google dead astronomers. There's been over 100 teams of astronomers that yep. have died. Stay safe. Stay well, my friend. Okay, Bob, listen, we've got to go, but we will uh, check in. Keep sending those videos. All right. Thanks a lot for your, for your uh, exposure, Richard. All right. That's Bob God Dunning. Bless. God bless you. That's Bob Dunn in uh, Pittsburgh who is sending us these uh, uh, smartphone videos, which he says uh, is Planet X, a brown dwarf star carrying an entire solar system, and it's headed this way. Well, forewarned, forearmed. All right, that's it for us. Again, my thanks to Tim Spreen, Albert the Intern, Eric Eames the Intern, all of you for listening. Back next week with the Andreessen Affair, one of the most celebrated UFO abduction cases. And uh, we'll also get a visit from Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator with our monthly Paranormal News Roundup. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, and coming home. Good night.